And hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I'm privileged to have Dr. Anton Chuvakin in our virtual studios here to give you some insights as CISOs on things such as EDRs, SIMs, and all of his amazing things that this gentleman has been working on. Anton, welcome to the show. Sure. Thank you for inviting me. By the way, I love your voice and I envy you as a fellow podcaster. I envy your voice. I want a voice like this. Well, I've been told I have a face for radio. And so <laughs> maybe that's how it works. But uh, if I could brag about you a little bit, I mean, you, you're right now at Google. You get, your company got acquired about three years ago. And you're also co-host of the Cloud Security Podcast. So hopefully people who would like to learn more can go ahead and listen to your podcast. And you had also spent some time at Gartner as a research VP and a distinguished analyst and done a lot of things that really have kind of credited with coming up with the term EDR, as well as being a SIM expert, uh, PCI compliance. You've written a bunch of books, Security Warrior, PCI compliance, logging and log management, and contributed a few others. So again, real privilege to have you on board. Sure, it's gonna be fun. So the thought is this, if, if we start out I always kind of like people understand their people. What kind of got you into cybersecurity and, and how did you end up going in this direction? Uh, as they say, I haven't heard this question for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but a uh, good number of years ago, people did ask me how I ended up in cybersecurity, even though my education is in physics. So uh, definitely there are stories. And at this point, these stories are 20 years old, so maybe they're not super relevant. But I do still think that the career or education in kind of hard sciences is one of the helpful ways to get into cybersecurity. Now, would I want to have a psychology degree? Probably, because I see a lot of very soft challenges and very human challenges in our beloved domain of cyber. But I feel like my physics education did help me quite a bit as well as like a rigid thinking, not rigid, but more like structured and consistent thinking, which we do lack sometimes in cybersecurity. That sounds good. Yeah, I think physics was the one course. It was quantum physics was the one thing I just couldn't get my head around at the undergraduate level. I mean, how could something be here and not here? It'd be true and false at the same time. And I was a little bit too binary to embrace quantum. And I, I got David Bohm's book. I figured I'd go ahead and reread it. And then I realized I've forgotten all of that uh, calculus after all these years. So I may just go through my life without fully understanding quantum and I just have to accept that. But uh, yeah, today, though, for most of our listeners, they're probably more interested in things like uh, security operations centers and SIMs and things like that, because that's a little bit more uh, everyday today type activity. But if we talk about SOCs for a moment, let's start out with kind of an interesting proposition. What happens if somebody comes into an organization or you've been there a while and you reach a point where they say, you need to create a security operations center. Mm -hmm. And you're given sort of a greenfield opportunity to go build mm -hmm. something. What advice would you recommend for somebody with that, with that opportunity? So that's actually a, a challenge I kind of made uh, myself and some of the colleagues at Gartner solve when I was an analyst because uh, I've, I did see people come in with questions like this. And sometimes I'm going to start on the funny side and then go serious later on. Uh, people would come up with a question and I would say, Okay, do you, and they say 24-7 SOC, and I say, are you aware that 24-7 SOC is probably no fewer than eight people? Like, if you count, depending on how you count, you may get 
come up with the smallest number, eight or nine or occasionally 12. But the point is that to do a 24-7 SOC, you need a sizable team. And some of the organizations that came to me with the question had an entire cybersecurity team numbering maybe five people. So there was already a massive mismatch between what they thought they need slash want and what they can have. So our thinking at the time evolved to explaining a lot of hybrid slash outsourced models where you retain certain detection response and security operation excellence in-house, but you do rely on a partner for other things. Now, I've grown to really, really hate the term outsourcing in this context because a lot of people, even a lot of CISOs, maybe more junior CISOs, unfortunately approached outsourcing as a Coke machine. You throw a coin and security comes tumbling out. So a SOC operated with a partner is not like that. So to me, I would say the first advice I would give is, are you anywhere near capable of staffing a security operations center, especially 24-7? If not, let's talk about how to build the right hybrid model. Are you giving the partner, the MSSP, MDR, a task to monitor your externally facing environments? Are you focusing them in a particular area? Are you doing your team during the day, partner at night? There are a lot of hybrid models, but ultimately my advice would be to figure out the hybrid models first before they go and do other things. Now, in some cases they show up and say, yes, we can hire a full-time SOC. We can hire a team. Honestly, I have not seen many organizations that just start from scratch and like Today, they have absolutely no SOC of any kind. And tomorrow, they have 24-7 SOC of 10 people. I don't think that ever happens. I think there's a gradual journey. And another popular question I had when I was an analyst is, how soon can I stand up a SOC that's maybe good? Of course, I would hit them with my maturity diagram and metrics for a SOC so they, they would question the good. I would say, don't do good. You can't do good. How about we aim at slightly below mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they, take, they take offense. They say, Anton, we don't want mediocre. We certainly don't want slightly below mediocre. At which point I say, let's study again those outsourced hybrid models. <laughs> because you can buy certain excellence in certain areas, but ultimately you cannot buy SOC excellence. It is a multi-year journey. And if you want industry average SOC from scratch. Sorry, but it's still going to be a month, many, many months journey, if not a small number of years journey. So aiming low in the beginning, getting help from a provider, matching requirements to reality, matching what you can to reality, and then doing really hard thinking about what the SOC mission is. Because in a recent social media conversation, I had somebody... I was trying to spark a certain discussion about SOC metrics and somebody said, Anton, before we do SOC metrics and before we discuss them on Twitter, how about we define SOC charter? How about we define what my SOC would do? Because here on this call, on this podcast, we may assume that we know what SOC is. It's a detection and response team. And then some other person shows up and says, no, 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 no. My SOC also does vulnerability scanning and compliance. And they also do password changes. And they also do, I don't know, random other stuff. And I'm like, oh, so you're equating SOC with the entire security operations capability. How about let's not? 
Well, SOC is security operations capability, but that's not really what we're aiming for here. Uh, Correct. We're not talking about faster password changes or faster other things. Uh, When I I hear SOC, if you wake me up at 3 a.m. and says, Anton, I'm building a SOC, if I don't have a chance to ask you for, like, what's a SOC charter, I would assume you are building a detection and response capability. I would first focus on detection and response and then figure out what else you want to include. Now, it's interesting. So kind of summarizing, as you pointed out, and I think a really good point, you might be able to outsource certain activities, but you can't outsource the risk. You can't then go to your investors, to your board members, to your fellow executives or shareholders and say, uh, yeah, there was a bad screw up, but it's not my fault because, um, well, somebody else was responsible. So first of all, you have to remember, you can't outsource risk. As you had said about people, excellent point on that. When I was in the military, we used to stand watches around the clock, and it took a minimum of five people to be able to ensure that people had about a 40-hour work week, because you figure 168 hours, but then people do have vacations, there's holidays, a little time off, and then you have to round up to five. And typically when you're budgeting, it's not just five salaries, but it's five salaries and benefits and the overhead, and about a 2.0 loading rate now means you're paying 10x if you've got a $50,000 sock, which would be dirt cheap, that's a half a million dollars. And if you're paying them a salary of 100 grand, that's a million before you bought your first piece of equipment. And as you had said, focus first on the mission, the charter, what it is you're all about. As we look at identify, protect, detect, respond, recover using the cybersecurity framework, it's really the detect, respond that's going to be the core of that sock. And the other ancillary functions, you might put them in the same room so they feel like they've got some friends, but to a certain extent, that's really not what's going to be the core element. Did I capture all that correctly? Yes, correct. That's exactly right. And we haven't touched on any of the modern cloudy stuff and all this cool cloud native thinking that's kind of infecting security operations. But as far as basics that were mostly surviving the test of time from the early 2000s, that's correct. Yes. So let's let's talk about the cloud native stuff a little bit, because we're seeing an awful lot of migration to the cloud. I know that in my environment as a CISO, we I'm getting rid of all our servers. We don't have any servers here. And as a result, everything's up in the cloud, except for the users, of course, and the actual devices they're working on. But more and more, we're seeing a push on the enterprise level. So what would you suggest that CISOs or security leaders look for if their organizations are considering heading toward the cloud? What are the what are the errors that often are made at the beginning? So this was a, a point of some obsessive coverage on our own plot podcast, of course, called Cloud Security Podcast. There's a story behind it connected to how Google named things. But we had people like Phil Venables and a few others who kind of tried to really decipher and decouple that specific problem. So I would share maybe two things. And one of them is really stuck in my head in in kind of like, and then I see more evidence of this thing being critical. A lot of people, a lot of organizations migrate to the, migrate technology to the cloud, but their thinking doesn't migrate. They migrate to cloud with on-premise mindsets, approaches, practices, and even just like their risks. Like people who ask about physical security, like, like that's, I'm sorry, but it's a little bit crazy. You're not stealing a hard drive from Google's data center or frankly for any other top tier cloud provider data center. The physical security is definitely on the cloud provider's side of the responsibility matrix. 
But the challenge is that a lot of other more subtle points of how people are used to seeing things on-prem really have way better ways to handle them in the cloud compared to just copying the tools. I was trying to explain it funny enough to a CISO once, and I said, hey, you have this whole stack of security tools. What do they do? They do this, this, and this. Now, you have the purposes and the goals for those tools. How about you go back up to purposes and then come down to the cloudy ways of solving the same problems? So if you migrate, when you migrate, you want to be solving some of the same problems, some but not all. But the means of solving the problems better be cloudy because that's how you save money, gain efficiency, increase security. You are not just copying your packet capture tool from on-premise to a cloud and then hope to capture every single bit of traffic inside the cloud. You can do that. But ultimately, you'd be kind of a mismatch between what's real, what's possible, what's needed, and what you're doing. So to me, this is the main point of contention is that people do migrate to cloud and they bring all their mistakes, all their approaches from on-prem to the cloud. That's been my fear that it that we don't stop it because ultimately that causes disappointment in cloud. People think, I expected huge cost savings and agility improvements and I don't have either of the two and why not? Well, that's because you copied your entire stack of security and also that you didn't make use of some of the cloud ways of doing things. And it sounds almost like people who are going to move from one house to another and they go, hey, honey, instead of like clearing everything out, let's just move everything and then we'll sort it out at the new house. At which point Correct. you just brought all of the stuff. But as you had said, right. you But you're moving to an orbital station. You're not moving from Smith Street to Jones Street. You're moving from a house to an orbit in space station where it's a living space for sure. But first thing is it's round. There is no gravity in there. And it's far away from everything. So like there are other differences that are kind of substantial. And can you really furnish a space station the same way? Well, I guess at an enormous cost in launch fees, maybe. <laughs> but is it a good idea? Yeah, and and I think your point about making sure that I love this metaphor. I just made it up. Sorry. Well, it, it's a good one. I kind of like that. I'm following along. I haven't been to space yet, but I have moved. But um, when you migrate, of course, you're migrating our systems, our data, our business functions. But as you had said, there's a chance you're going to migrate also the same business problems as well, the things that you face. But the important thing, and I think this goes along nicely with the space station metaphor, it needs different solutions to solve those problems. We can't just simply you know, export everything we've had and said, hey, I've got all these little tools and maybe I can shove them into the, the cloud pipeline because I've already paid for the licenses and maybe they'll just keep working again. And maybe they will, but maybe they would do it at 5x the cost. Think about log collection. I don't want to. I really don't want to drag you straight to the SIM discussion. I'm sure it's coming. But if I am saving logs in my little text indexing software installed on servers, can I make the same servers run in the cloud? Yes, you can. Can I store the data in the cloud? Yes, you can. But why are you using an on-premise born tool in the cloud? You would be paying for it. It, it would work. Or you can force the vendor to make it work if you're a big enough client. But why? It's not an efficient or effective way for that matter. 
Yeah, and I, I think it's a transition, which is sometimes constrained by some legacy systems. So I have a, a friend of mine and his IT center, they're moving everything up to the cloud, except there's one problem. All their applications that run all the client data, all that database is on an AS400. And yeah. they're like, wait a minute, we, we can't, the guy who writes the code is 60, late 60s, gonna, he's going to retire or die or something like that. And the one thing that saved them, though, was ES400. I'm not going to mention the company name, of course, but uh, they got ransomwared and they didn't have any attackers over the age of 65. So nobody knew how to break into the ES400. <laughs> and so their data was totally intact. I mean, they got a couple of you know, administrative stations, but they recovered nicely from that. But as we go into the cloud and we look at that migration, there's an opportunity then to take advantage of different types of approaches, serverless computing and things that really don't exist within the core data center or the usual down to earth location. So what, what should people be looking for in terms of those new technologies, those boundary technologies that are give them more capability? So one thing is, before we go into the discussion in more depth, I would say that th what you just said sounds like good advice, but at some point people say, wait a second, I have applications to, to move and you are telling me I should cloudify them or migrate them kind of upfront so I'd have better experience, but ultimately I'm on a short timeline, I don't have time. Can I just move them naively by putting them into boxes, putting the boxes in the cloud and keeping them there? And as much as it pains me that I want to say, no, don't do that. I know back in my analyst days, I would say, well, yes, you can do that, but here's how you then plan your transition. So as long as it's a temporary state, I can see people doing it and I'm not going to go have a nervous breakdown over that because I can't force everybody to become a cloud native day one. It's a journey. But there are some elements of the journey that you will have to count on to succeed. And, and one of them is, identity management. Now, people made fun of me for finding logs to be fun. Like I can be excited about log analysis or parsing rules or correlation. And I'd be like, that sounds like fun. But you know what's boring? I am. I always made fun of them back by saying, well, logs are exciting. Identity management though, that's boring. That's about password changes. I am sorry. And of course, it was a humorous, uh, kind of a humorous banter between analysts. But I now know that when you move to the cloud, IAM becomes, I guess, what's a good analogy here? To follow the space theme, it's like alien technology. <laughs> so it's just done differently. Like I was trying to read IAM documentation for Google Cloud, for some other cloud providers. And I'm realizing I don't know some of the words. <laughs> like even words, I don't know what they mean. I was looking at, I think it was uh, from another provider, but it was something about the distinguished name. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. And I'm not an IAM expert, but I know that it's a cloud, it's an element from a particular cloud provider approach to IAM. So the reason why I'm like giving you the semi-serious, semi-rambly line is because the first thing I would study as much as possible so that I don't make huge mistakes in my move to the cloud is how identity management is done there because it's done differently. Uh, sure, cloud natives would say it's done better. I agree. But if you only lived in Active Directory for 20 years and suddenly you need to live in Google or some other cloud provider, IAM, that's cloud native, you will see that things are different and you better know how they are because 
a more cynical way, which I'm sure some of my corporate overlords would hate me for saying, I'm just going to pretend it's a quote from my podcast guest. It's, it's the reality. You may be one IAM mistakes away from a breach in certain cloud models because you don't have three layers of firewalls. You don't have, oh yeah, this is a disconnected system. You don't have, oh, it's an original data center. Nobody has access. You may be one IAM mistake away from a breach. Now, if you do it well, you're not going to make this mistake because the cloud native systems are done very well to prevent those mistakes. But IAM becomes, should become a center of your attention. Compromised accounts, impersonated accounts, IAM mistakes, permissions to lose, permissions copied from on-prem without thinking. A lot of this just piles up on you. So if you are a leader, a security leader in the middle or in the beginning, rather, of a cloud transition, make IAM team your friends and make them study cloud because you will need it and you would regret it if you don't. Yeah, and that's, that's really solid advice. Now, with respect to IAM, what's your thoughts about the imperative for MFA? Um, I mean, from my perspective, it's sort of an absolute simply because the idea of a static password or worse, a shared password. But is MFA kind of the highest and best way that we can do that? Or is there something that goes beyond that that gives us a better technology? I, I really hope you're not pushing me to say zero trust because I will. Uh, I mean, it's... Uh, Wait, it's I, I not... need that on my bingo card. Okay, great. I, just... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ultimately... Nobody, I, I, haven't met, I haven't met anybody sane who argues against MFA. We invited some of, the, uh, some of the teams from Google that do this, and they do research around abuse and fraud, and they, they, had, they had amazing data sets, massive data sets that indicate how dramatically MFA killed many types of security issues. We had a, a podcast episode that was called, Is Fission Solved? Question mark. And it was mostly about large-scale MFA adoption. So. However, ultimately, MFA itself is a big part, maybe half, maybe one third, I don't know, of a different model. And some people know this model as zero trust. And I don't want to be a buzzword spinning mode. The point is that if I turn on my, my Google laptop, I don't VPN anywhere. Like there is no VPN and nobody here has a VPN probably for, I don't know, seven years. So... MFA is a critical element of that because MFA is an absolute must for any kind of zero trust style access models. But ultimately, to reduce risks that aren't directly handled by MFA, you do need to pilfer more ideas from zero trust. I can, be, I can put my product hat on and say, hey, buy a product, but ultimately you are not just buying a product. You are changing the way you do access at your organization. And there are access models that are both more secure and lead to more productivity. Sorry, I, I, found, I sound like a zero trust uh, evangelist and I'm really not I, because I am aware of the complexities of that journey. But at Google, we do leave this as, as kind of a living proof that it can be done. It's a bit hard. And there are many papers that described how hard it was for us. But it's certainly something that delivers the value. And, and I concur with you. I, would, I wouldn't feel that you need to be embarrassed about zero trust or, or speaking highly of it. I mean, it is difficult. There's been, a, of course, a push from it. If you remember on the 12th of May in 2021, the president came out with this EO that talked about zero trust and our move toward that. And then all the elements with the CMMC, the version two, you know, it's all kind of pointing in that direction. So it looks like 
whether it's buzzword compliant or not, that we're moving toward an area where pretty much everybody's going to be authenticated. Everything is going to be validated at the point of transaction and trust will decay over time because the idea of a stale trust certificate really represents at the core most of where our breaches come from. Uh, Overly broad access is the other leg, right? Overly broad access. I type my password, I get access to the internal network, air quotes. Like how 1990s is that? Well, that's completely 1990s, right? So in, in that sense, if you burn the term zero trust and you say MFA, granular access, transaction level authentication, and a couple of other elements, it starts to sound boring, but ultimately that's what we are doing, right? Yeah, well, fundamentally. But let's not talk about the boring stuff. Let's talk about something that's exciting to you, logs. I mean, you've written a book, (laughs) Logging and Log Management. You've written courses on it. Yeah, let's go for it. Tell me about logs and a big data lake full of them or something like that. So let's just tackle maybe a more exciting element of this and people usually, you know, try to, you know, troll me a little bit by saying, is Anton, is Sim dead? And uh, sometimes they bring up XDR, sometimes bring up they bring up security data lakes, sometimes they bring up other problems with Sim and say, is Sim dead? And over the years, I joined my first Sim vendor on January 2002. So I recently wrote a blog post that said, what was titled Dubious Anniversary, 20 Years of Dealing with Sim. And over these 20 years, I had kind of like ups and downs. I wasn't always a crazy screaming Sim evangelist. Definitely, I saw many negatives. A lot of my presentations started with how not to fail with Sim. Because, hey, I wanted to set a low bar. I didn't want to say how to succeed with Sim. Frankly, I don't know. For some companies, <laughs> I don't know what to tell them. <laughs> But let me try to tell you how not to fail. <laughs> like At least that was my thinking at the time. So SIM is not dead. And the reason it's not dead is because ultimately we will derive security value from logs. And some of my, my other friends from EDR, they say, Anton, but wait a second. If we have a really good EDR and it detects threats well, it collects telemetry, it gives you an ability to investigate rapidly and effectively, shouldn't it kind of diminish the need for a SIM? And I say, initially I said, no. And now I say, actually, yes, it will. But how well your EDR with E standing for endpoint handles, how about this, microservices? How well it covers software as a service? How well even it covers containers? So to me, the SIM being the log route and EDR being an endpoint agent route, they're both useful. And uh, back in the Gartner days, I had this triad of visibility for logs, EDR, and network traffic analysis. So like network endpoint logs. And I still largely subscribe to that model. The challenge is EDR is hugely useful. It matters a lot more now. But does it cover the environments where there's no E, there's no endpoint? To me, it doesn't. All this stuff that will happen inside the applications, all this observability stuff, all the new log types, they have nothing to do with EDR, nothing whatsoever. And there may be, there will be uh, indicators of threat activity in those. So to me, the some form of log analysis will be with us for the foreseeable future. If somebody have failed with their fourth SIM product, they would hate me for saying, SIM is alive, you need it. But if you don't like to say SIM, 
I would just say some form of log analysis for security will survive. And its importance has been on the decline because of EDR, but I bet it would go back up at some point because of some of the cloud native technologies that just don't have an E. There's no endpoint. No E, no EDR. Pretty easy. And I don't think that X would save you. I think that uh, X would extend from an E, but there's no E. How are you ex extending it? Interesting. Yeah. So I, 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 if we look at the idea of logs, and I kind of used to joke with people, I said, you might have an effective logging program, but a very ineffective log analysis, which means you can retroactively said, hey, boss, at exactly 2.13 in the morning on Saturday is when we went bankrupt, because that's when the last of our you know, trade secrets kind of left the enterprise. And so it seems that Along with being able to have effective log collection, of course, identifying those systems and those important things and having to cut off thresholds so you don't get clobbered with just a huge amount of data because log management in the early days was simply deleting the files before they fill up the hard drive. And that's how you manage your logs. Today, we're a lot more sophisticated. What is the value of something like an AI technology in being able to do some of that interpretation as compared to the good old-fashioned if you will, SOC analyst who sharpens uh, the pencil, so to speak, and, and gets to, to work working on the log data. So I may kind of show my age here, and I would say that, frankly, a lot of things we accomplish with rules is actually better with rules. There are certain things where the rule-based or the human-created patterns or an expert-created patterns or even threat intelligence-based detections, there's almost no no point in trying to machine detect the same stuff. Because I'll pick an example. For certain types of detections, back in my, in my very first SIM job, I've written a lot of SIM rules focused on authentication failures. I had the password guessing, password successes. These are really dumb to do with humans. Because these are, this, this is where you need to go, machine learn stuff, extract patterns, and have the logic be built from data. But if I have just learned of a new type of threatening activity, and I'm not going to say which specific TTP, like I pick something random from, from MITRE attack that's relatively novel, and I know how to encode it in a rule, I'm not sure why I need to train the machine to recognize it. I have the pattern right there. I can just match it against logs. So I would use systems. I would use the algorithms. I would use ML type technologies or other type of non-rule based approaches. But I would always couple them with the known form of known bad. Ultimately, we will learn bad from research, from observing threat actors. And if we can have a way of reliably, effectively encoding that bad into detections, I don't really need AI for that. I may need AI to assist me in building rules. I may need AI and ML technologies for certain types of detections that are just really bad with humans. But ultimately, I don't think we are anywhere near either or. We are in the, you really need a solid way to do detection engineering, engineer detections from research results, from malware. But you also need things where you profile and machine learn and detect from that. So this kind of still and, not an or. So it's good news for people who are working in that area. You're not going to be replaced by a machine anytime soon. And, and that would be good. Now, as we were talking earlier about SIMs and, and going in that direction, uh, one of the things that, of course, comes up is there's a lot of varieties out there. There's some well-known brand names out there, and there's some that are very expensive and some that are not so bad. But 
for somebody who is looking for a SIM for the first time, they've not had one or they come to a new job or the company's just grown to the point where, hey, now it makes sense to do so. What are some of the criteria that should go into that decision-making process? So, so one thing I would say, I would say I would have, I would start from one, one somewhat obvious point. And, and the one somewhat obvious point is that you would want this SIM to be cloud backended. You would want a software as a service SIM. You really wouldn't want to have the appliances and servers. And, you know, it sounds almost ridiculous to even debate it in 2022, but it is a debate in some circles. Now, the reason why I wouldn't want an on-premise SIM is because I really don't want my security engineers to be performance tuners for a scalable application. I don't want them tweaking indexers so that they perform well. I don't want them configuring, migrating, and upgrading databases. This is just too... It's just too stupid. <laughs> and, and especially when there are vendors who would have a software as a service SIM. Now, this is not a hidden ad for Chronicle. This is just a point about a model for SIM rapidly shifting to SaaS having an advantage. And, and to use an example, I would just use EDR. And funny enough, EDR was started much later than SIM, but EDR drove to cloud backended tools faster than SIM, which is really interesting because uh, vendors like CrowdStrike started with, with a cloud-based backend. They were never fully on-prem, unlike others. And it was a hard battle for them, but ultimately today we know that if you're buying an EDR, you're not going to buy backend servers and scale them. You are buying a cloud backended EDR because it's almost like you're not going to debate typewriter versus a computer. Like you're not going to say, no, 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 I want mechanical because I have peculiar requirements. This is, sounds kind of bizarre. So for, for EDR, you're buying cloud backended. For SIM, there is still a bit of a debate and you'd be like, wait a second, Anton, that makes absolutely no sense. For vulnerability management, we are cloud backended. For EDR, we are cloud backended. For SIM, we're kind of debating. Why are we debating? Well, we are debating because of cloud costs. We are debating for, for reasons, for various reasons. But ultimately, if I'm buying a SIM in 2022, I'm buying SaaS. I'm not buying on-prem. I'm not buying any kind of fake cloud where it's a software SIM installed in somebody's data center or somebody's cloud. I am buying cloud native. I'm not buying anything else because I don't want to perform and steal my SIM. I'm not smart enough. I'm only a PhD in quantum physics. I'm not, I'm not smart enough to perform and tune a large-scale data collection and analysis. And I don't think anybody is. Yeah, and, that, and that's a good point then. And so then given that we'll take the universe of possible choices and then we're going to narrow it down ideally to looking at the kind of the cloud-based environment, would you look at more than one? Would you, you know, would you have a bake-off where you're trying to work one vendor versus the other? Do you really have to make a decision and then just run with the one answer rather than getting a chance to compare them uh, side by side? Back in my Gartner days, I would always say that never POC less than three. Because when you POC two, you always have pros and cons. And it's like, one is great here, bad here. The other one is the opposite. Which one do you choose? You go and agonize over that. So three typically fixes it. I don't think I invented this rule. It's kind of a rule of threes or whatever from the decision science of some sort. So yes, I will. I still, I would still tell people uh, POC at least three. Now, can you POC three sims for 90 days each? Eh, probably not. Like some people do that, even for longer than that. But ultimately, you may run it in parallel. The whole machinery of POC is a separate story. But 
yes, I would probably prefer three. The reason I would choose three is also because the cloud SIM, the software as a service SIM is still settling. And there are things with feature gaps. So for example, I would talk to some, uh, a traditional on-premise SIM that is far in their cloud migration journey versus somebody who was born in the cloud. The first one would have more functionality, but be less cloudy. The second one would be like perfectly cloudy, probably much cheaper, but would have gaps in functionality. Which one do I pick? I don't know. It depends on you. And so that's why I would still do three, uh, three tools POC. Now, as we get multiple SIMs going, and one of the challenges, of course, is that as we bring things in and we start out, because SIMs, for the most part, don't start with many rules on, out of the box. They're like uh, a bicycle on Christmas Eve. Some assembly is re- uh, required, usually <laughs> a lot more than you thought. But much less for SaaS, though. Much less assembly than for, for the, well, install Oracle. Like my first SIM job in 2002 was like install a database first, then do everything else. And so now that's all set up for you. But typically, though, in the early phases of a SIM, you're going to have a lot of false positives. And it's, and it's going to either have people running around chasing them, and then maybe like the boy who cried wolf, they say, hey, you know, this thing is just not worth listening to. Do we tune it out? Or how do you keep your team focused on the fact that by tuning that SIM, by getting rid of the false positives, you're increasing the signal-to-noise ratio, it's actually getting better for you, and it's actually a worthwhile activity to wade through this sea of data to try to be able to get there. Is there any techniques that you found that work well? So the approach I was was always recommending, and of course there is a blog post probably from 2013 where I kind of explained it, I call it output-driven SIM or output-focused SIM, where it's like, I'm not just enabling all the vendor rules. I, I try to think, what do I want? Why did I even buy the thing? Did I buy it for compliance? Did I buy it for reporting? Did I buy it for detection threats in my uh, outward facing? Or is it more about applications? Like I would, I would go and be very, very precise, very crisp about the use cases. I bought a SIM and my first use case is to collect data from VPN and from remote access systems, maybe Zero Trust, VPN, whatever, like any kind of remote access, and I'm going to look for patterns of compromised accounts. That's a perfectly good use case. And yes, ML is quite helpful. So I would probably buy a SIM that has not just rules and not just threat and tell, but has some algorithms. So to me, this kind of like pretty religious adherence to a use case approach, which is kind of a broader vision around the output centric SIM is what I would suggest. This advice, please don't laugh, but I've been giving this advice kind of pretty much nonstop since roughly before I was at Gartner, so maybe since 2010, but it's still the right advice. I mean, it's not like I check whether it's still real and it's still real. I mean, it's still a better approach to succeed with SIM is to be very crisply, very specifically use case centric, not just like I want to collect data and hope for the best. Well, every environment's going to be different. And of course, environments evolve over time, much like products sometimes evolve, but they may not go in the same directions. It's possible for enterprise requirements to start moving in a direction where maybe a prior SIM model or investment isn't going to necessarily be the best in the future. How do you know when your your SIM concept is failing and it's time to replace it? How do you know when it's just, you've kind of outgrown it, so to speak? So my, my 3 a.m. answer, and it's kind of my test, uh, 3 a.m. test is kind of like for alerts, I always say, is this alert worth waking somebody up at 3 a.m.? And in this case, I'm using it somewhat differently. If you wake me up at 3 a.m. and says, Anton, should I replace my SIM? And you offer absolutely no context. My answer would likely be no. And the reason why my in, in lack of lack context, lack in answer is probably no, 
is because most of the failures with Sim aren't really tech failures. I would trust a great team with a cheap, barely functioning Sim compared to a really bad team with the market leading Sim. Like ultimately the first team is better equipped to detect and respond to attackers, even though their tool is inferior. So I would certainly collect the context from a client to figure out why they want to replace. And I don't have the percentages. I, I take a random guess. In a quarter of a cases, it will be about the tool. And the tool really is broken. And the tool is really not a fit because maybe the CISO inherited it from a previous CISO who bought it just for fun or because the salesperson was his friend. I don't know. The point is that quarter of a cases, I would look at the situation and say, yeah, it is about the tool. You really need to burn this one and, and buy a new one. There's a lot of migration advice. I don't think there's any kind of shorthand to how to migrate a SIM. But one thing that I would always say is that you're not really transitioning from SIM A to SIM B. You're kind of sunsetting SIM A and you're starting from SIM B. You are not converting rules. While there are now standards for rules like Sigma and what Yara L that, that Google is pioneering, you still have to recreate a lot of detections. You still have to recreate the reports. So you're kind of sunsetting one SIM and slowly ramping up the use of another. How would I say that your case is in that quarter of cases of, of, of it's about the tool, it's not about you? Scaling is one test. If, if you really cannot jam any more data or jamming any more data that you do need to jam, and you confirm that, is unaffordable. It may well be about the tool. If I am maxing out my license and I do see use cases for having more data and my vendor is telling me, sure, our tool can absolutely scale to that volume of data. You just have to pay us 12 more millions a year and you're going to be just fine. Oh, by the way, you also need 3 millions worth of hardware because we are on-prem. Like, if I see that, I'd be like, hmm, yeah, my team knows the tool. My team may like the tool. But do I have another 15 mil line around a year? Mm, no. Okay, so what do I have that I can replace it with? So scaling is kind of a hard barrier. Sometimes even with open source tools naively deployed in the cloud, there are scaling challenges and there are costs that are being shifted to the cloud cost. Ultimately, I can give you a free SIM, but you deploy it in the cloud and then the cloud provider bills you the same amount of money because it's using cloud inefficiently because it's ultimately an on-prem tool. That happened as well. So scaling is one bucket. It may be about the tool. If the vendor or the technology is a big mismatch, is a very drastic mismatch to my use cases. For example, I may have a tool that focuses mostly on using threat intelligence, using, using kind of externally focused attackers, but my use case is monitoring SAP for insiders. Like if, it's, if the gap is too big between what I have and what I really need, it may be time for, the, for another tool. This is not common, I, I admit. It sounds like it should be common, but it's not. Because by now, if you know your problems are not solved by the tool, you'd be already sunsetting it. In most other cases, it's not about the tool. It's about broken process, not having skill, not using outsourcer right, or something other than my tool is bad, I need a better one. Got it. Well, that's some really good advice there, and I think people should keep that in mind. Now, you're, of course, you're at Google, and I've always seen a lot of great things. Is there anything you could... You know, talk about that might be coming out of Google in the near future, things that you've been working on that we should look forward to. 
Okay, so this is obviously an area where I, I can't really talk too much about it. But one thing that I would highlight is, of course, we acquired a company called Simplify, which is a SOAR, Security Orchestration Automation and Response Platform. So a lot of our, our work in the area of SIM and security operations would be focused on making SOAR making source scale, making source scale to the needs, making source scale to the requirements from different clients. So to me, Chronicle, keeping to, keep to the product mentions, is a great sim, but we never had any kind of workflow at all. We never built it. So ultimately, the workflow where the analysts, the humans would work, collaborate with systems and algorithms would be the SOAR interface. So much of the fun stuff in this area on the tooling side would be about sort of fusing the log collection and analysis part, context enrichment part with the workflow orchestration automation parts. Now, in parallel to this, we're also developing the our vision that we call autonomic security operation on ASO, where we sort of learn lessons from how DevOps and SRE, Google term for site reliability engineering, I sometimes joke that it's kind of our own, like this brand of DevOps, even though purists would say that's not exactly the same, how these things that transform IT operations can transform security operations. So to me, a lot of things, one of the quotes, a quote for myself that I put in a recent blog post was, if you're trying to transform your SOC, you can't really ops your way to it. You have to dev your way to it. You, 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 you can only improve operations incrementally, but if you borrow more lessons from development, you can step change or kind of how we say 10x your SOC. Making operations better is always incrementally gradual. If you have to detect a million times more threats with a one-tenth of the team, kind of like what Google does, right? You're not going to make ops better. You can never be better enough if you're doing the traditional level one, level two, level three tiers, sitting in one big room, blah, blah, blah. Traditional SOC model, the model would not scale. The SOC itself, won't, the SOC, itself SOC paradigm won't scale. So you have to really build a different paradigm. And that's what ASO is about. So I'm super excited about this. It's not, and this one is not about selling tools. It's kind of about learning lessons from the IT revolution and applying it to the security revolution. That's too, that's, too, that, too lofty. I don't know, yeah. but it's fun. Yeah, it, it does. It sounds like good. We're getting kind of close to the end here. Is there any last thoughts you'd like to add or any uh, ideas you'd like to include? Hmm. Probably, I would come back to the whole cloud migration, migrate your thinking, not just the tech. I think that this has been tripping people quite a bit. And, and, and the funny enough that some of the cloud natives who were born in the cloud and they never migrated to the cloud, they just don't get it. So you can talk to somebody from a Silicon Valley firm that was born in the cloud and, you, and they would dispense really excellent security operation advice that only applies to somebody who was born in the cloud and does not at all translate to somebody who lives in, I don't know, I'll pick on Kansas, in Kansas and works for a bank and it's an on-premise bank and it uses mainframes. So this advice from a Silicon Valley company needs to go through a lot of processing and filters before it becomes useful to somebody who is in a more traditional environment. So... You can't just copy lessons from the cloud natives. You kind of have to learn your journey to the cloud, but the journey, but learn it, you will. Sorry, that came out a little too philosophical, but ultimately that's what I'm trying to say. 
Well, that sounds great. Well, I want to thank you again for those who have been listening. This is Dr. Anton Chivak, and he's also the co-host of the Cloud Security Podcast, and you can tune in at twitter.com slash cloudsecpodcast. And we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show. And if you've enjoyed it, send it to someone at work and subscribe to hear more great content. We'd love to tell more success stories from our folks and being other people on the show. If you have anybody you'd like to nominate or questions you'd like to send to us, go ahead and send us a comment at CISOTradeCraft.com or reach out to us on LinkedIn. We'd love to share the impact our show is making with others. This is your host, G. Mark Hardy, and thanks again for listening. And until the next time, stay safe.